0: Welcome to You Talk Podcast, where you talk and we listen and learn. Welcome back, Phyllis. We're very grateful that you are here again to share your story and that you're willing to do so, even though some of those memories might not be the best. Um, But we're all learning from it, so thank you for being here.
1: I I think... um... Honestly, telling my story and and explaining details um, helps to diminish the fear and the horror. Hmm. Each time I tell my story, the less power it has over me, the less influence it has over me, because I am voicing what happened, what my story was. And the fear level, the unknown, goes down. And the more I learn and the more I know and the more pieces and background I acquire, it starts to make a lot more sense. It's not an experience I would wish on anybody. Right. But at the same time, it is part of who I have become. And so I don't feel the shame and humiliation, and I don't feel embarrassment at at discussing it mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I have the self confidence to recognize that it wasn't me, that it was really him, um, right. that he abused his position of authority as a father figure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was eight years old. Yeah. I was an eight year old, very confused child with a very turbulent upbringing under some very harsh survival conditions. And with a mother who's a narcissist on top of things, hmm. you know, it, it was just a very difficult situation, but I survived. Yeah. And I've learned that part of my healing is to give voice to my story, um, to tell it without shame, humiliation or embarrassment so that other people can understand this whole concept of grooming and how it happens so gradually and incrementally and how we're manipulated. Yeah, I think Um, it's
0: important that we talk about the grooming because it didn't start and stop when you were eight years old or when you were 15 years old. It continued on throughout your life, and I'm sure it had a big impact on you. Right, right. I mean,
1: it continued on. Uh, Yeah, it, it continued for a long period of time. And it's really hard to distinguish whether a certain pattern of behavior from the outside looks like it's altruistic versus predatory Mm. because the same actions, same words can from the surface appear to be the same. Mm-hmm. But internally, I guess, they're different. Right. So how do you know? How do you recognize the difference? You you don't. I mean, I was a scared, lonely child that was trying to survive in this foreign environment. My mother was no help at all. My mother was doing her own ego thing and I didn't have the loving support of my father and so I was exposed and particularly vulnerable to this sexual
0: predator who yeah yeah. it makes me sad as I'm sitting here listening to this because I'm thinking you know children have a right to feel loved by their parents by their uh, relatives by family friends they they have a right to have a hug and feel like that's okay and yet you know In some situations, there are ulterior motives and they can't trust that. And it's a difficult concept for me to understand, let alone a child to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we deal with that? Yeah,
1: it's a very difficult, difficult concept. And you're right, That to me, there has to be a certain level of balance. But when you are learning from adults what's appropriate, what isn't, and their concept of love and and the, and that's the thing is
0: the abusers don't even know what appropriate love is so you're saying abusers like your stepfather yes. are confused about how to show exactly. love exactly so i have no doubt my mother was abused hmm
1: even sexually abused hmm. and so maybe in her mind this was normal and so the fact that i was abused well Welcome to her world. You know, that that's just what happens to women. I don't know. Mm. At the same time, because my mother's a narcissist, she honestly does not, she cannot even begin to understand the concept of what it is to love somebody unconditionally. Yeah. Because everybody she loves is conditional. And and it's the same for her, too. It's the same standard. She will never understand how to accept unconditional love. She's under the same restraint of believing that she has to prove herself to be absolutely perfect. She has to control everybody in order to be deserving of, of love. And hmm. so it, it's a very hard concept. And I think, I hate to say this, but I think most people in this world don't understand what that means to love unconditionally. Hmm, Sad, but probably true. And how to love somebody unconditionally um, in a healthy, appropriate
0: way. Right. Yeah, there's a difference there.
1: You know, and that really it comes down to do you love somebody and you give your love to somebody, even if they reject it and they're going to throw it away. It shouldn't matter. Hmm. And that when you give your love to somebody, they don't even have to do anything to deserve it. Right. You're just loving them and accepting them for who they are. And it's a very hard concept for most people to understand, right. But to receive just you know a general maternal parental love, <laughs> I think is even a difficult concept for a lot of people to understand. I've no doubt my stepfather also was abused and sexually abused. Hmm. And I think he grew up thinking that you either are a taker or you are going to be taken from. And so as a result of that, has felt that he has to, in, in his life of interacting with females, that he has to be a taker he has to be the sexual aggressor and so as a result he groomed me to be his confidant his his best friend and to use terms of endearment that had an ambiguity to it that could have been appropriate for a father-daughter relationship or a lover Wow, that's interesting. And he kept pushing the boundaries of that to see how much I would accept.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To see, I believe in his mind, he was hoping that when I reached a certain level of maturity, sexual
0: maturity, that I would be the one to seduce him. Now, that's just creepy. But then he could blame it on you. Exactly. Exactly. And so he was working his way
1: to being a part of my sexual awakening and wanting to be my guide and coach in that mm. and accept that incest was best, that incest was appropriate. And for some reason, and I don't really know why, but by literally by the grace of God, I just knew it was wrong. Right. And it wasn't through anybody else telling me or media or influences. It just felt wrong. Nobody told me. But I knew it was inappropriate and it was wrong. You just knew. And, um,
0: you know, there was there's no sexual attraction (laughs) because. Well, yeah, he's your dad. So why would there be that's so odd to us that he would even think that. But I guess we don't understand what goes on in the mind of an abuser. And maybe they tend to look close to home because they have more control over those children who are close to home. I agree. And so
1: I think he, after unsuccessfully grooming his biological daughter, I think he felt like this was another opportunity to to try to make it work and it failed thank goodness you know miserably although there was another sexual encounter that greatly disturbed me and traumatized me mm-hmm. however again like i said by the grace of God, I was fortunate to be able to say no and recognize that this was inappropriate and wrong. Right. And also recognize later on that this caused a lot of issues and problems for me that I had to work on and resolve. Right. And so I guess I don't have any guidelines of what's appropriate or inappropriate, but I do think that if there is a altruistic parent out there who wants to protect their child, that they should give their child a voice. Mm-hmm. And while that won't prevent sexual abuse from happening, at least the child is aware of the possibility that they could be touched inappropriately. And to give tools, language to the child or the victim of what to do with that, with that experience. I think that's really the main kernel of wisdom I can offer.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to talk to our kids. I know a lot of people are probably afraid to bring up something scary to their children because it might damage them in some way. But let's face it, we live in a scary society. I mean, our kids have lockout drills at school for active shooters. So I think one more thing that we teach them about to be concerned about and to be cautious about isn't going to hurt them too much. And I think it's always great to help empower them that they can stand up for themselves and they know what's right and wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. So I I talked to a friend of mine who uh, is a parent of three children, two sons and a daughter. And she is a practicing Catholic. And so I asked her, I said, how do you handle the fact of all this priest abuse of their parishioners? Mm. And she's, she was honest. She said, it terrifies me. It terrifies me for both my sons and my daughter. Mm -hmm. And so the best I can do is at an early age, give my children the language they need to describe what is happening to them. That includes naming body parts without any shame or humiliation or guilt. So you call a penis a penis and you don't make it a big deal of the penis is a, is a more uh, scary part of the body than your hand. Mm-hmm. You use the words of vagina. You use the words butt. Uh, you use the words of private parts, and you also enable or you give your children the right to not be touched in any way, and and that doesn't mean just of their private parts, but to trust their instincts. So if they are touched by, if somebody places a hand on their shoulder, and that feels wrong to them, the child needs to know that they have the right to say, please don't touch me, or I don't like to be touched there. I don't like to be touched at all. Right. And that is appropriate.
0: And that's okay. You know? hmm. Yeah, this makes me think of tickling. Like I remember when I was little, my older brother would tickle me mercilessly. And I'd be laughing on the outside, but really it was becoming uncomfortable and I wanted him to stop. Yeah. So in contrast, I have a grandson who doesn't like to be wrestled with or thrown up in the air or tickled by someone he doesn't know. And he's not shy about telling them that, which is good because it's better to offend a grown up than to um, get abused later on because you're too shy to tell someone not to do something. And the reality is they're grownups. They can get over it. They'll understand. Yeah. So I think it's important what you said that we need to teach the kids what to say and have a voice. They have the
1: right to not be touched if they don't like it. And that doesn't include just only touching of their private parts. But also, if they're uncomfortable with being touched on the arm or giving being hugged, enabling the child to be able to say no, Um, enabling the child to say, I have the right to my own personal space or body integrity, Mm -hmm. and also to feel comfortable with saying, you know, hey, mom, somebody put their hand on me you know what part of the body you know they put their their hand on my chest and I was uncomfortable with that and to handle that very matter factly but validate the child's experience and their emotions and their reaction I think really goes a long way to not perpetuate the cycle of abuse. Right, And for that parent to be able to confront or, or somebody in a position of trust, it doesn't have to be a parent, it could be an aunt, cousin, whatever, enables them to be able to validate that experience and, and hopefully confront the abuser in some way to put a stop to it. Yeah. But at least enable that victim a voice.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: So this parent is very good, you know, since they were little and able to name things, taught her child all of the different body parts, did say, you know, your penis, your vagina, your butt, those are private parts. And that means, you know, nobody but your mommy and daddy and your doctor should ever touch you there. Right. And if you are touched there, then you need to let me know because, you know, I, I don't want you to be hurt or that it would
0: be wrong. Right. And sadly, sometimes even their mother or father shouldn't be touching them there. Exactly. You know, most often. So that makes it more confusing to them also. But Exactly. Especially we can teach them that other people like religious leaders or teachers or other relatives shouldn't be touching them there.
1: Right. Some of what I've heard involving the sexual abuse by priests and altar boys has been that their parents never talked to them about certain body parts. And so the priest acting as a teacher would use their position as a teacher to talk about different body parts, as if that was just part of the normal teacher-student relationship, which is, well, I teach you everything spiritually. You trust me there, so why can't I teach you about your body parts that apparently nobody's taught you about? But let me let me get into detail about it, you know, and then it goes from there. They groom the child to have a comfort level of discussing such things. But the teacher slash priest will then also say, well, now this is only to be discussed with your most trusted people. And if you haven't discussed this with your parents, you shouldn't discuss it. There's a reason why your parents haven't discussed this is because, you know, it's not appropriate to talk to them about it, but it is mm. okay to talk to me, the priest, about uh, it. right. So what's interesting about those in authority who groom their victims is they develop the language and the rules of communication. And mm. so if a parent can set the rules ahead of time, then at least the child can voice what's going on mm-hmm. better than if they didn't have the language and didn't have the words or the rules, or they learned it from their abuser.
0: Right. That makes sense. Be ahead of the game. Be proactive. Right. If you teach your child ahead of time what areas of the body are not to be touched or seen by other people, then they will know when someone like that tries to do it, and they will recognize it's wrong and tell somebody, hopefully.
1: And the other thing that a groomer does is they will define what sex is. And this is an example. So my stepdad defines sex as only being vaginal penetration.
0: <laughs> They're using the Clinton-esque definition of the word sex. I did not have sex with that woman.
1: Yes, which is by legal definition completely wrong. There there's numerous ways to have sexual contact without just vaginal intercourse and it's sex. You know, but a groomer, like I said, a groomer who is manipulating a young victim will control the language, will control the information, will control the definition of an action. So that if they define sex as being, I don't know, you know, penal penetration, and they—I'm going to be graphic—and they digitally penetrated a, a victim— So when the victim is questioned by law enforcement or their parents, you know, did you have sex? They'll say no, because they didn't understand their definition of a sex, which
0: was given to them by the groomer, doesn't match the actions. Right. They don't understand what happened. And,
1: you know, that actually matches... You sent me a link about some sort of study that was done by the National Health... Yeah.
0: um, Some kind of
1: National Health Organization.
0: National Center for Victims of Crime.
1: And it was a number of those who reported
0: being sexually abused. Yeah, and they quoted various studies, but I think the number was one in five girls and one in 20 boys. And... I kind of took issue with that figure because I would bet
1: that those who did not report being sexually abused, that if they were re-interviewed years later, they would change their answer because they didn't know what happened with sex. They didn't know that was sex. That was sexual abuse. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because of the definition of the language that has been maintained by the abuser.
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: And I think that's also why this Me Too movement has been so important, because people are using the language. They are being graphic, and they are explaining exactly what had happened. And people are really realizing that while that might not fit into their definition of sex, Mm -hmm. it's wrongful sexual conduct. Right. And it should not be happening. It should not be happening without full consent. Exactly. So giving victims, giving children a voice, giving them terminology, language is a really good defense. Yeah, I agree. Is a really good defense. And, I mean, it would be wonderful to, to have, you know, if a priest would, would say, well, you know, have your parents told you what your body parts are? And to have that student say, yes, of course they have. Right, yeah. And to say, well, you know, do you know what this part is? And the child can say, yes, that's a penis. You have a penis. You're a male. I have a penis, too. And I'm uncomfortable with this.
0: Yeah, that takes away the abuser's game plan because the child can say, yeah, I already know about that stuff. See you later.
1: Yeah, I've already been there. Right. Yeah. 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 And and that would stop the discussion.
0: Well, you would hope anyway.
1: You would hope, well, at least you, again, you give your child the right to have a boundary, the right to say no and say, you should not feel uncomfortable based upon any action. If they have a discussion about your private parts, well, you know, that priest is not a doctor, is not your parents. There's no need to have that discussion. Mm -hmm. Or if they, if they touch you, if they hug you, if they put their hand on you and you're, you feel uncomfortable about it, you tell them or you tell me.
0: Right, tell the nearest trusted adult as soon as possible so that we can stop the abuser in their tracks. Right,
1: And, and it isn't necessarily as soon as you can. I mean, I think that helps stop the abuser, But it's that you have the right to tell somebody and to be heard. Right. That makes a huge difference to victims. Mm -hmm. And that's another part that's really amazing about this Me Too movement is it's provided a forum Mm -hmm. for these victims to express what has happened. They're being listened to Mm -hmm. for the first time.
0: Right, because for so many years, sexual abuse or sexual harassment or things like that were just swept under the rug or not talked about or even downplayed, boys will be boys, things like that.
1: Yeah, and part of it is, unfortunately... I don't know where we developed it in our, it isn't just the American system, but we're rather puritanical in that we are afraid to have these very frank discussions. We're afraid to use the proper terms for body parts. Right. It feels awkward. You know, we we just, we literally consider that to be private, which means secret, which means we don't talk about it all.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And the problem with keeping things secret is that nothing ever gets fixed. Um, There's this attitude of shame involved, and that's maybe why children don't talk about it. Maybe the abuser convinces them that it's something they did wrong, and they don't want to get in trouble, or they should be embarrassed about it or ashamed. And so they're afraid to talk.
1: Exactly. So I think it's important for some adult person with a child or a victim who can exactly take that shame level element out. That's what's so difficult about abusers who are grooming their victim because they are in a position of authority. And part of that position of authority is as a victim, you hold that person in awe. You, you have this expectation that everything they do is, I'm just going to go the extreme godlike. And if there's anything wrong, it's with you as the victim, your perception, not with the person in authority. And especially somebody who is part of a religious sect or, or uh, organization, they will use their position of authority And they will use the shame and the guilt card because that is how they manipulate. Unfortunately, Um, they shouldn't, but it is how they will manipulate and get their congregation to follow whatever direction they they want to go in. And so if you are used to this conditioning and this uh, authority and this use of shame and guilt, then it's nothing different than to take advantage of that and to inappropriately sexually abuse somebody. And for that person to feel shameful, attribute that shame to something they did, not what the person of authority did, but what they did, And then you're right, there's less of a opportunity for the victim to report. And I think, honestly, the Me Too movement has done a great job in taking out that shame, guilt level. And so I I think it's been very helpful for all victims of all types of abuse to say, what am I ashamed about? Because it was nothing I did.
0: Yeah, let's turn the shame back on the person it belongs to, the abuser. Exactly. Let's make them feel the shame again. Yeah. And I'm wondering, if a child doesn't hear about these things at home, where do they hear about it? I mean, is it the job of the school system to teach them? Is it the job of the church? Or what do we do for the children who are being abused at home?
1: right well i think i think our culture though is changing dramatically changing i mean the reports of sexual abuse the lawsuits that are being filed the complaints The reports have just gone crazy. There's been an explosion of complaints. And I think that's unfortunate in the sense of, oh, my gosh, sexual exploitation has been, well, sexual abuse has been happening a lot more than we have recognized. I think we all knew that. But I think because all of those stories are getting out into the media, I think that's, that is creating a culture that, yes, that also includes our school systems and our teachers. And I do think our teachers can be in positions of an adult person who can at least say, no, what your parents are doing to you is wrong, is
0: improper, you know? It's tricky because they could just as easily be being abused at school or at church.
1: Exactly. And children naturally, I I shouldn't say it isn't just children, but it is also people in our systems, whether they be be religious in our hierarchical system. We are taught to respect and trust those leaders. We're taught to respect and trust our teachers for, for the most part. Um, We are taught to respect and honor our parents. And you're right. It is a real difficult scenario. And, you know, I think, though, that our culture really does help. And I think the Me Too culture now has brought these issues to the forefront, Mm -hmm. letting people know you have the right to your own body, physical integrity. If you don't want to be touched in a sexual manner, you have the right to say no. And I think that's the very important big message that I know is being heard by a lot of different people that are in at the minimum junior high school or middle school uh, and high school. So I think the message is getting across. I think the message is getting out there. And you know, kids who are on the internet who are listening to the news stories, I I think because of all the news stories that are coming out of all of these folks that we have idolized, including sports stars, that when there are these allegations of, of sexual abuse, rape, sexual assault, that children or kids of probably even as young as elementary school, definitely in middle school and definitely in high school, they're hearing,
0: they're listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'd hope they'd hear about it anyway. They're always on their social media and YouTube, so you'd think they'd hear about it. Yes. You know the kids that are part of the Catholic Church definitely know about priest abuse. Yeah, they probably know more than their parents sometimes.
1: You know, I mean, because it's something they have to, you know, be, of course, they're going to be aware of it. Um, and so, and then when you have different, like I said, superstars, a movie stars, rock stars, and sports stars, the word is getting out. I think the word is getting out.
0: Yes. So tell me, when you were raising your son, did this experience that you had change the way you raised him? It did. I have been more open
1: with him. I have taught him about his body parts and what to name them and to respect his body. I'm not sure I necessarily taught him at a really early age that he had the right to create boundaries. However, I really probably overprotected him in the sense of I watched which adults he was near and just watched
0: their interaction and just was very careful. Were you ever afraid to let him join organizations like the Boy Scouts or things like that? No. I, I think we were very careful and yeah, we were we were just extremely careful.
1: And, and he really wasn't interested. You know, we did, I did sign him up for soccer one year, but mm-hmm. poor kid, he was so skinny and so thin, he had no fat on him. So he had a real hard time in the when we had cool weather of keeping just warm. Aww. And um, so that didn't appeal to him. Mm-hmm. And we found teachers that would teach him to play music, but It would be only for an hour and we would be either in the same building home or, you know, within 10 minutes away. Like I said, I probably was overprotective of the company that he kept. And by the time he was nine, my husband became really a house husband. And so in that time whereas my son would have after-school programs to go to or he had a babysitter that he went to. Now he could come home and he would have a parent home. And I think he really liked having that. He really liked having my husband, his dad, home with him. It was a nice presence. And not to say they always interacted with each other, but it provided some
0: nice security for him. Just knowing he's there in the house, yeah, that can make a difference to them. So how did you handle your relationship with your parents while you were raising your son? Did they have a good relationship with him? I
1: made sure that my son would never be alone with my stepfather, even though as far as I know, he only abused females. I learned, unfortunately, I made one mistake of having my mother take care of my son one day. And that ended up being so disastrous that I never again left him alone in her company. Oh, wow. and and even on visits with my um, brother being his main caretaker, I made my brother swear that he would never leave my son alone in her control. And that even included her driving.
0: So what happened that day that made you not let him be with her anymore? The day of the disaster?
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I was working in Santa Fe. My husband was working here in Albuquerque. And my mother was supposed to take my son and another school friend of his to the zoo, and then just come back to the house. So my mother, for some reason, decided to make this particular visit very complicated, and we had just adopted a little kitten for my son, and this kitten was the sweetest most wonderful kitten we have ever had just adored Sam and just the sweetest little personality and we hadn't even taken it outside of the house I mean let it to be outside because it was such a new kitten right and um, we also had a set of ferrets in the backyard that we only let out under close adult supervision watching the whole time Well, my mother decided to complicate matters by inviting a child of a couple that we kind of knew, but really didn't. My son was maybe six years old, probably six. His friend was six. And she invited this, let's say, 11 or 12-year-old boy to Hmm. be with these two six-year-olds, which, you know, the dynamics and the age difference is so weird. And... And then the young man, the young boy, had some emotional issues, Uh and it was kind of evident, but for some reason, my mother thought this would be a great idea. So anyway, she took them to the zoo, all three of them, brought them back home, and literally created this incredible situation of chaos. She let my son take the kitten out, and I think it was based upon the urging of this 10, 11, 12-year-old boy. And he wanted to hold the kitten. Mm -hmm. She let the ferrets run. Uh And then she went inside to get something to eat. And so they were under her supervision. We had some backyard neighbors that had some wolf hybrid dogs. Oh, no. The 11, 10-year-old, I think he was 11, I'll just say 11, decided it would be fun. And these were barking, aggressive dogs, Mm -hmm. decided it would be fun to hold the kitten near these dogs oh. and so they grabbed the kitten and two of them played tug of war and ripped the kitten apart in oh, front of my son
0: no oh, so no. my
1: son was screaming that all the kids were screaming oh. my mother had no idea what to do she panicked mm. so she went running down our street everybody works crying for help and found one neighbor that was driving by and explained the situation. And he said, lady, what do you want me to do? Uh. So she, she panicked and didn't know what to do. So she, she went back and, I mean, she left the kids to go see cattle. And so she came back and I think she figured, well, I got I to clean things up here, you know. She ruined things. Mm. So she didn't take care of my son. She didn't take care of the other six-year-old, but she ended up calling the parents of the 11-year-old saying, you need to come pick him up. Mm. And so they did. And then she calmed herself down enough to call me in Santa Fe. And so she tells this story. She doesn't tell me everything, but she tells it like, you know, this act of God happened, and mm-hmm. there was an accident, and these dogs, you know, grabbed the kit And I'm like, well, well, what was the kitten doing outside? Right, yeah. How did the kitten get near the wall? And it was just, it, she couldn't explain it. Mm-hmm. So I asked my mother how my son was doing, and she calmly said that he was doing fine, that she explained everything to him. And I knew that was completely wrong. So I I told her I was going home as soon as I could, but it was going to take me an hour from Santa Fe and that I was going to call my husband. Hmm. So I called my husband. He was in the middle of a meeting, and I said, this is an emergency. I explained what happened, and he took a break from work, went home. And he pretty much looked in the backyard and he saw the body of the kitten. And he basically took a, like a shovel, leaped the wall, got the body of the kitten away from the dogs and wrapped it, you know, in some kind of cloth. And he checked on our son and, you know, he told him, look, mom's going to be home. Mom's going to be home in a few minutes I have to go back to work, but, you know, we love you. Just go to your room. Ignore your grandmother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so anyway, I did come home a few minutes later. So the first thing I do, of course, is I grab my son, and we're just hugging, and he is crying hysterically. Oh. And I'm letting him cry. And out of the corner of my eye, I realize she's never taken care of his friend. His friend has been here the whole time. Oh. And she never called the mother of the friend wow. to come get him. And he was in shock, probably. He was. He was just silently, quietly watching with these enlarged eyes. He's in shock. Mm. And so I very calmly, I, I said hello to his friend and I said, I'm sorry you saw what was happening. I'll, I'll call your mother so, you know, she'll come and pick you up. And I took my mother aside and I said, why didn't you call his mom? I, right. you, you lost your mind. Yeah. You're not taking care of things. And at that point, my mother said, I need to go to my room. I need to take a nap. Ugh. She couldn't handle it. I mean, that was her response. The kitchen is in disarray. I realize the ferrets are out running. I realize my son's friend is here being traumatized. My son is totally traumatized. Mm -hmm. So I... Wait, doesn't your mom have a degree in child psychology? Developmental psychology, yep. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. And she's been working on uh, becoming a clinical psychologist, practicing clinical psychologist. So I call the mother and I I apologize, I explain the situation and I, I tell her I don't know how much he's seen or witnessed. I do know he has seen everybody else become hysterical and upset right. and that she needs to come and take care of him. And so she does and she, she's really nice and she called me later on and said he actually didn't see any he didn't see the dogs. But he certainly heard it all. Right, right. But he heard it. And mm. I don't know if that's worse, but he was, you know, very sad and upset about the whole thing. Anyway, it's just absolute chaos the world has, you know, fallen, and my mother can't handle it, and she has to go to her room and take a nap. Hmm. And I realized later on that she was composing herself so she could tell the story from her point of view and how she was traumatized and she was the victim of the story. And so when my husband came home, and by this time, we had basically put our son to bed. You know, I think we gave him some Benadryl or something, and and just said, look, you, you, I'm so sorry, but you just you need to sleep, you need to just rest. And I think he had school the next day, and I I just I did not send him to school, and I hmm. stayed home with him. Oh good. So my mother, after a while, after everything is calm, after we've cleaned up the kitchen, after I found my ferrets, put them back. <laughs> I mean, there were toys. There was. I mean, the, the house was in chaos. The yard was in chaos. Yeah. And so, cleaned everything up, got everything back to order. I think we were making dinner, and my mother comes from the bedroom and she then tells this dramatic story about how the 11-year-old took the kitten and was walking too close to the wall. And it was like, you have to del- to be that close. You have to deliberately make an effort to go there. It's not like you can. There are garden beds there. Oh, right. it isn't like you just wander and you find yourself there next to the wall. Mm -hmm. And she focused on the 11-year-old, his trauma that, you know, he kept saying, I'm going to go to hell. I'm going to go to hell because, you know, this is my fault. Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah, it is your fault, but it's my mother's fault for letting this happen no apology, nothing about, I'm so sorry, I created this chaos, I've traumatized your kid, your son's friend, and this 11-year-old, nothing. Mm-hmm. And so she pretty much went to bed and said, I, I think I need to go home. And in the morning, she just turned around and packed and left. So I wow. uh, <laughs> It was very hard. Yeah. So I, I realized that that was a lesson and a sign that I was never to leave my son ever again alone in her control. And mm. I told the story to my brother and explained, I said, you know, I'm not saying she doesn't. She's just irresponsible and she has no concerns about anybody but herself. And you just cannot leave. I said, I trust you, but don't leave him alone with her.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, she left you alone asleep at her boss's house when you were eight years old. Yeah. So that says something about her responsibility, even though she did marry him. She married an abuser, basically. But what kind of relationship did your little brother have with her growing up? He had a very different relationship with
1: my mother by that time my mother had a different persona she was a phd college professor married the love of her life and this was her love child Mm. and my brother's name was half her english name and half my stepfather's name Mm -hmm. and so he was a perfect love child And doted on him and made it very clear that this was the child she wanted to have. Mm. There was also a difference in terms of that he was a boy. Right. And she could relate to having a son. And the cultural, I don't know, mystique of being able to produce an heir Mm -hmm. definitely was important. They had a completely different relationship than than I had, where we were struggling and I was an unwanted child. It's not to say that they have a healthy relationship, because I would say they don't. Mm-hmm. She, too, has learned to manipulate him to do her bidding. He has an easier time and a way to set boundaries and say no. But she relies upon him to take care of her. Hmm. And he has been catering to her, but I think recently has learned to how to stand up for himself and to say, no, I have to live my own life.
0: Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. You know, as I listen to your story, I just realize the failed parenting on every level. You know, your biological father, your mother, your stepfather, and it almost seems like your relationship with your mother is just as bad as with your stepfather because of the resentment you have.
1: I think you described it perfectly. Um, I, I was afraid of my biological father because he did display an explosive temper. He did show that he was capable of using violence my mother was not supportive of me she was a narcissist meaning she was very self-centered and really used me as a pawn for her to accomplish whatever ambitions she had and it wasn't until later on that i believed, even if it wasn't consciously strategically planned I believe that subconsciously, as part of her being a true narcissist, that she used me as a lure to capture my stepfather uh, Mm. in the marriage and in the relationship. Do you think she knew he was an abuser? I think she subconsciously knew that he was a sexual predator at some point, but wanted to preserve her ideal of a family So just continue to manipulate me because I was the most under her control in order for her to have the narrative that she wanted Wow, of being a successful woman who moved to the United States, was able to attract a well-educated,
0: attractive man um, from a different culture. So... She didn't really see herself as being responsible for what happened to you in any way. She was the victim of the narrative, not that she
1: was the one that set everything up. Okay. So she used me in a way that she could place blame on me if something didn't work out. She could blame her second husband and her willful, wanton daughter from an unhappy relationship. And uh, that they plotted against her to make her the victim of a story. Wow. And so it was very difficult. And it continues to be difficult to have a relationship with her. And as a matter of fact, I have cut off all ties with her. Oh, wow. Because we can't have a relationship of equal power. Mm-hmm. I
0: either have to submit to her complete control or there is no relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just so amazed by mothers who know on some level that something bad is going on, but they don't do anything about it. Yes. I mean, how do you lie to yourself on that level that you would put your children at risk? Yes.
1: Well, again, it didn't fit her narrative. You know, she, even when she confronted me with it, it was... Woe is me! I'm the victim. Everybody is plotting against me, and your stepfather is the one who turned me against you. I said I didn't believe you because he lied to me, and I I believed him, so I gave you up. Oh, great. For him. Yeah, that doesn't help. And and that's not true. And then later on, when she, um, when he admitted and fully confessed to being a sexual predator. I know she turned that narrative around again because she couldn't live with herself. She couldn't live with the knowledge. She knew this was going on. She helped perpetuate the situation mm-hmm. that made her a perpetrator and not a victim and could stand the fact that I was a victim of this, of her plotting.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's just too hard for her to admit. And so she takes the easy route and, Pretenses.
1: Yeah, except for the fact that she has to really work hard to rewrite history and to make it fit.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: my mother is living a very illusory life. Mm-hmm. And she is of the belief that if you repeat things and you say it verbally or put it in writing, I don't care what you do, it somehow will become concrete. It will become the history. But ultimately, I know that she knows that this isn't right. It doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this inherent conflict that she is living with in order to keep this narrative going.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of work. And you've got to constantly be on your toes trying to convince yourself and others that that's what really happened. You do. But you can never really have peace unless you acknowledge the truth and it's going to have a negative effect on all your relationships.
1: It, it will. That is part of life. That is what is happening. And, um, you know, she's trying to figure that out and make peace, but I'm not going to be part of her illusory attempts. And I'm not here to make her feel comfortable anymore. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, Yeah. You need to focus on you and getting well. Yeah. And I'm really glad you are willing to share your story with us.
1: We've spent a lot of time discussing and focusing on the sexual child abuse. And that might be overkill, I guess, compared to other, you know, other other interviewees. But I think it's a subject that's important to discuss. Right. Um, And... um, and I'm not, af- obviously, I'm not afraid of discussing
0: it. Yeah. And it's been very therapeutic and helpful for me as well. Oh, good. Because um, it's such an important topic. And it's something we, as a society, need to work on to fix. Yes. It's just not acceptable to let this continue to happen to kids.
1: Yes. And again, I, I still think one of the most important things is to be able to provide a voice, right. a means to voice the experience of what has happened. Mm-hmm. It's not a preventative, but it is certainly a tool for healing and it may provide a pathway to start bringing attention to the issue, how prevalent it is. Right. Literally give notice to the abusers that this is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. We all know this is inappropriate. And you, the abuser, need to stop and think about what you're doing and know that there are consequences.
0: Right. There definitely need to be consequences for the abuser.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Because
0: there already are consequences for the victim. Exactly. So
1: I think it's important to have the discussion. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping what I have been talking about is a way to further that discussion along.
0: Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. We're so grateful. And now is a great time to wrap up this episode. And we hope you'll stay with us and listen to the final episode of Phyllis's life story. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to You Talk Podcast. We hope you'll join us again. And by the way, we would love to have you as our guest on You Talk Podcast if you would like to tell your story in a full-length episode, please email us at utalkpodcast at gmail.com. We also welcome your thoughts about this episode and any experiences you might like to share with our listeners. Just Skype an audio message to our username utalkpodcast at gmail.com. Please use a good USB mic if possible. Thanks. Can't wait to hear from you.